I'm just glad the introduction doesn't eat into the sermon time, right? So it starts now, right? Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Chris. It's been a joy to be with uh, you and your church um, in the home stretch. I don't know how your pastor does this every Sunday, four sermons back to back to back to back to back. Uh, but here we are. And if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask if you would turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking primarily just at that first verse, verse 1. This is one of those texts, of course, all of Scripture, the entire Bible is inspired by God, is breathed out by God, um, to use the biblical words, comes from the very mouth of God. So all of Scripture, every word, every verse in, in the Bible is inspired by God, it's infallible, it's inerrant, um, it's, it's um, you know, suitable for us, sufficient for us to know everything we need to know. But there are certain scriptures, I don't know about you, there are certain scriptures that seem to resonate more, that kind of fit into the missing piece of our heart a little bit more. Maybe they're different ones for, diff- you know, for different people. For me, there's a handful of scriptures that sort of feel like heaven. Um, George Herbert was a great uh, British poet. He said that the Bible was heaven laid flat. And the idea is that when you open the Bible, it's sort of like you're opening the window into the heavenly space, into the place where God is. You have access into the very presence of God through his word. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 is one of those verses for me. It, it, it feels like heaven to me. I don't know if it'll strike you that way or not, but I hope as we sort of tease it out, um, we'll begin to see some of the depths that are there. It's, it's one of those verses that the longer you look at it, the more you stew in it, marinate in it, uh, the more delicious it gets, the, the, the richer and, and, and deeper it is. It's a little bit like, um, I don't know if this works for you, this illustration, but it's sort of like a Narnian wardrobe. You know what a Narnian wardrobe is, right? Okay. Uh, it's not Narnia China. This is a story Chronicles of Narnia, there's a wardrobe in the story, and it's, you know, an ordinary wardrobe, but when you open the wardrobe and you go inside the wardrobe, what's inside the wardrobe? It's like, there's a whole other universe inside the wardrobe. Well, the gospel is like that. I think Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 is like that. If we'll step inside this wardrobe, I think we'll see the heavenly realities. Let's begin reading. I want to read verses 1 through 4 just to give you a little bit of the context. This is what Paul writes. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray. I want to thank our Heavenly Father for it. Ask him to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we do... Thank you for this word. We thank you that you're not silent with us. You are not a God who has left us to our own devices, left us to try to figure things out on our own. You are not distant, quiet. But every time we open this book, this book that comes from you, we hear from you. You are speaking to us. We can never rightly claim that you are giving us the silent treatment. And so we thank you for this word that you have breathed out. We ask that you would help us through it by the power of your spirit to see uh, in some new, fresh way uh, the glory of your son that we would love him more, that we would be impacted by his love for us more, and that we would give you all the glory. And it's in your son's great name that we pray these things. Amen. Now, one of the first things I notice about Colossians 3.1, just sort of one facet to the diamond that's here, one sort of level to the depths that are here, is the past tenseness of it. I know that's a made-up word, but I'm, I'm the one up here, so I can make up the words, and you'll just have to 
put up with him. The past tenseness of it, right? If you have been raised with Christ. There's an assumption of, of an ongoing reality. Something happened that now impacts the present reality. It's not um, something that he hopes will happen. It's not something that he presumes will happen. It's not even something he expects will happen, at least not in verse 1. It's something that he is assuming has happened and therefore is a present reality. The past tenseness is super important. You have been, if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been, past tense, raised with Christ. Now, we could stop right there. I don't know about you. If, we, if our minds are in the Spirit, right? I mean, that makes today eminently livable. I have been raised with Christ. Now, there is a sense in which, as Christians, those of you who um, have put your faith in Jesus, there is a resurrection to come, present, uh, uh, a future tense. There is a, a, a future reality, and that's what Paul talks about in verse 4. When Christ appears, future tense, you will appear with him in glory. And he's talking about the second coming. When the Lord returns, he's going to vanquish sin, vanquish death, vanquish pain, uh, you know, vanquish hell. He's going to give you a resurrection body. You will live forever with him in the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. That is something that will happen. But that's not what he's talking about in verse 1. He is talking about something that has happened and, and creates now a present real reality to you. Now, maybe a spiritual reality, and I think we need to get out of our heads the idea that if something is spiritual, it's less real. I don't know about you, but when we think of spiritual things, because they are invisible, don't they see some, you know, seem sometimes as less real? But the spiritual reality, because heaven is, is thicker than earth, really, is actually more real. And so what Paul is saying here is astounding. If you have been raised with Christ, you are, okay, look, if you have the Bible open, look in verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Like, you're here this morning. I know that because I see you. Maybe you don't know that you're here yet. You haven't had coffee yet or what have you. But, like, I, I know you're here. I can see most of you. You're here. But if you're a Christian, in some sense, you're also there. Like, you're just there waiting for you to show up. Like when verse 4 happens, someday you're going to get there, and you're going to be there waiting for yourself to get there. And you're going to be like, I'm so glad you're here. Now finally we can be a whole person. I don't know about you, I, I am longing for the day I can finally be a whole person. So in some sense we're here, but in some sense, spiritual sense, we are there. That the if-then kind of um, formation of the verse is important. If you have been united to Christ, then what? If you have been raised to Christ, then what? If you are saved, if your life is hidden with Christ in God, then what? Well, Paul would say, if you have been raised with Christ, then you ought to seek the things that are above where Christ is. Well, he's helping us tap into really an understanding that we all ought to be mindful of, which is this. The problems that we have, the behavior problems that we have are always belief problems. Like your problems are not fundamentally problems of behavior or action. They are problems of theology. Every behavior problem is a belief problem. We always act according to what we believe to be true. So if your mind is not set on the things that are above, if, if you're living according to an old reality, that you're an old creation, that you haven't been renewed, that you're not a new creation in Christ, that you aren't raised with Christ and seated with him, you're going to act like you're not. But if you have been raised with Christ, Paul would say, then you ought to seek the things that are above. Now, I don't know about, about you, but I have to reset myself on this every single flipping day. 
It is a constant, constant battle for me. I, I need gospel rebooting every morning. Because I don't wake up thinking, oh, I'm seeking the things that are above. Like, I'm immediately seeking the things, well, to be specific, in the morning, I'm seeking the things that are in my iPhone. I don't know if that's you. I do what all, like all of the um, efficiency experts, productivity experts, leadership gurus, they all say, do not use your phone as your alarm. Anybody else use your, their phone as the alarm? Yes, all of you. Who uses an alarm clock anymore? It's like, like old ladies in the woods use alarm clock. Like who, <laughs> no, no, who, who would use that? I was like, you have to actually mail order that. You can't even buy that in the store anymore. Why wouldn't I use my phone? So my phone is right there on the knife stand. And so, you know, the, the noise goes off. I wake up. I swipe it to turn it off. And before my feet are even on the floor, before I'm even upright, I'm not even raised with anyone. I'm, lay, you know, I'm staring at the ceiling. I'm looking at my phone. And what am I doing? I, the first thing I do is I check my emails, which they also say, you should never do that first thing in the morning, look at your emails. But I'm a very important person. Things come in overnight that I need to know about. Things that, you know, impact the world, really. The the universe. And they all involve me, and I have to look at these things. And what happens is I I already, I get into this sort of groove of self-centeredness and self-interest. And I start thinking, not of the things that are above, but a recurring phrase is in my thoughts before I even get out of bed. And that phrase is this, my day. I don't know if you have that phrase in your head when you wake up, but I think about what's going to happen in my day. How is my day going to go? And that's sort of how my thoughts operate. And then I get up and I, and I you know, begin my day. And it's as if, it's as if um, I'm, I'm starting a movie. It's the movie of my life, of my life story. And all of you get to be in the movie. Lucky you that you get to be in the movie of my life. But you're all just sort of supporting characters. You know, it's nice that you're there. Um, you know, uh, but you're all just kind of bit you know, bit players in the story of my life and of my day. Now, the problem with this is everyone I meet actually thinks it's their day and their story. <laughs> and I'm somehow a supporting character in their, in their life and in their movie. And as you can imagine, this doesn't really work out. It begins for me, you know, on the morning commute. I know you Los Angelinos, you know a lo- whole lot about commutes. You're like the Tom Brady of commutes. I'm just Mark Sanchez in my way through the morning <laughs> commute. Um, but in the morning commute, this will just give you some insight into the dysfunction that is me. But in the morning commute, maybe I get an amen on this if this resonates with you. Everyone's going too fast or too slow. Yes? Everyone is driving too fast or too slow. You're dri- someone, whew, that guy better slow down. He's going to kill somebody. I can't believe he would go so fast on the freeway. Or you're behind somebody, like, just pick up the pace. We're on the highway. You know, you're just like, we've got to get there. Come on. Why is that? Why is everyone too fast or too slow? It's because you are the standard by which everyone should drive. Right? You're setting the pace. And really, if everyone would drive like you, everything would go so much more smoothly, yes? If everyone would just take their cues from you, there wouldn't be all these problems on the interstates and on the freeways. Well, here's another example. For me, probably the primary front lines of my sanctification is the grocery store checkout line. In particular, the one line that's marked express lane. Express lane is one of the biggest lies from the pit of hell that has ever come up. It smells like smoke as soon as you walk up, express lane. Like, what is that? Sul- is that rotten egg? The sulfur from hell is what that is. Express lane. I'm always behind someone who has a basket. First of all, if you have a basket, express lane's not for you, okay? And they have like 68 items. And I know because I have had time to count all of the items in their basket. 
and I've got two things that I can hold in my hands. That's why I'm in the express lane. They ring all these things up, and they're chatting. It's like somehow like they're, they're long-lost friends or something. I was like, this is a grocery store. It's not Match.com. Get, get out of the grocery store. I don't know what you're doing here. It's not chit-chat time. They ring these things up. Up comes a total, and it's like a surprise that the, the you know, the, it's, this lady is just like a surprise. they got to pay. Oh, I have to pay for these items. I didn't, this is my first time in a grocery store. I didn't realize I had to. And they pull out a checkbook. A checkbook. It's a 21st century. Why are you writing checks still? This is so archaic. You know, what's the date? What's the name of the, where am I again? All these things. And I, the whole time I'm just fuming, fuming. I pay with my watch. That's how futuristic I am. I'm already out of the store before I'm in the store. Like ring it up, boom, out. That's right. That's how we should all just, just all be like that. Why is that happening to me? Why am I getting so angry? Why am I so impatient? Why am I thinking of all the reasons why this, you know, it's like I start inventing stories. Like, yeah, you're buying Twinkies. That makes sense. You're a very slow, sluggish person. It, you would be buying Twinkies right now. It's, it's evil. It's not like I have some organ that I've got to get to the hospital and someone's waiting on a transplant or anything like that. It's hurry sickness. It's self-centeredness. It's self-sovereignty. The world belongs to me and everyone ought to revolve around it. What has happened? I'm not thinking of myself as someone who's been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. I'm thinking of myself as being the one who is on the throne, as if I am God. And so now everything that I do, every person that I see, everything I say, all my interactions, all my thoughts, not even just things I say, but the things I think about people all revolve around who I believe myself to be and what I believe reality to be, what I believe the spiritual reality to be. And the truth is, if you are not thinking of yourself, if you do not um, experience the reality of having been raised with Christ, you're not going to seek the things that are above. You're going to be seeking the things of earth. There's a guy in the Bible by the name of Solomon who wrote a great book called Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're a young person, I would encourage you especially to look at Ecclesiastes, become very familiar with Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes is Solomon as an old man looking back and thinking, oh, if I just knew that then, if I just was aware of this, if I had just done this right, if I just had that knowledge. And so when a man who's the smartest guy who ever lived, the most wise man who ever lived, is now looking back thinking, oh, I, I, I just wish I knew these things, we ought to pay attention. And learn some things from what he's saying. And as he goes through the, the story of his life in Ecclesiastes, he begins to sort of weigh all of these achievements and accumulations, all the things that he had. This room is pretty large, with a lot of people in it. If I were to ask you right now, what is the one thing, the one achievement, the one person, the one experience that for you would finally make you happy? Like, what's the thing? Like, if I just had that, whatever that is, then I would feel fulfilled or complete or what have you. There might be as many answers as there are people in the room. Well, Solomon, as many answers as we could come up with, he had them all, and he had as much of it as you can imagine. He had everything, and he got more of everything at his every whim and desire. And he starts surveying all of this stuff. He was king, first of all, so he had all the power in the land. He had all the money that he could hope for. He had all the wisdom that he could hope for. He built huge mansions. He adorned all of his mansions with beautiful gardens. 
With all of his money and power, he assembled the best entertainers and had the best artists come to perform for him and create for him. He ate the best foods in the world, drank the finest wines. He sought more and more money, more and more pleasure, more and more women even. And there's one phrase you see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It keeps coming up as he reflects on all of these things he's had, and it's this. It's chasing the wind. It's chasing the wind. Another phrase that he keeps saying is this. It's meaningless. It's all vanity. It's like trying to catch smoke. You think, if I, if, if I just have that, and once you have it, it's gone, you realize this, that didn't work. Maybe if I had more of that, well, Solomon had more of it, and none of it is working. It's all meaningless. It's all chasing the wind. There's another phrase in Ecclesiastes that sort of unlocks the reality of this, why this is such a problem. He says, God has put eternity in our hearts. Why has he put eternity in our hearts? It's that idea of the God-shaped hole, if you will, right? So there is this sort of cosmos inside of us, this, this God-shaped vacuum, heaven, a void of heaven inside of our souls. And we are constantly, we sense that need is there. And we keep trying to fill it with things that aren't heaven, with things that aren't God. And this is what Solomon has done, it's, he just keeps throwing all these experiences in and more and more and more and it never fills, it's, it's almost like, it's like throwing popcorn into outer space, just floats away. Don't seek the things of earth, thinking they're going to fulfill this, this need, this, this appetite. If you've been raised with Christ, you ought to seek the things that are above, otherwise you're just sort of chasing the wind. When I was younger, and I'm, I'm in this sort of weird stage, of, I turned 40 last year, so I don't think of myself as an old person, but I'm getting less young, if that makes any sense. I'm in the, that limbo where old people say, no, you're still young, you're still kind of an idiot, you don't know, really know anything. But young people call me sir and everything, so I know I'm not young anymore. It's, it's, it's really weird. So, you know, I'm getting less young. But back when I was more young, I used to think, if I could just get there, and depending on my stage of life or season of life, there you know, was defined by everything. So when I was in school, I hated school, just wanted to be out of school. And I thought, man, if I could just get out of school, everything would be fine. Then I got out of school and I thought, man, I, like, I didn't know how good I had it. I wish I could be back in school, do this all over again. Like, things get more complicated, things get more difficult. Got out of school and I thought, man, if I just get married, if I, if I just have the right job, if I just have the right bank account, if I just have the right house, if I just live in the right city, if I'm just able to go here or go there. And the problem with this way of thinking, this, like if I could just be there, and maybe there for you is something else. The problem with that way of thinking is once you get there, right, what happens to there? There becomes here. And now you're here, and there's a new there there. You're like, well, if I just get there, that, that would really do it. And then you get there, and there becomes here, and there's a new there. No, you, you never run out of theirs. You can only be here. And really what we're searching for is the heavenly there. Like, we'll never get there until we're there. And Paul is saying, oh, let this sink into your brain, Colossians 3.1. He's saying, if you're in Christ, you're already there. You're there. That's the end of the striving, the end of the chasing. You caught it. Or to be more specific, he caught you. The only satisfaction... The only satisfaction that you and I will find, and this is the biggest takeaway of the message. If you don't hear anything else, you need to hear this next statement. This is it. The only satisfaction that we will find is in who Christ is, what Christ has, and what Christ has done. 
The only satisfaction you and I will find is in who Christ is, what Christ has, and what Christ has done. Well, who is Christ? He's the son of the living God. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I don't know about you. I want to be friends with that guy. He upholds the universe just by saying a word? G.K. Chesterton remarked that it's possible that God enjoys his world so much that he didn't just create it and step away, but every day he upholds everything by recreating it in a sense. And so Chesterton says it's almost as if every morning God says, sun, come up, flower bloom, world spin. And because he's God, because he's everywhere and all-powerful, he can do this every nanosecond for all eternity, and he's just, he can keep all the plates spinning. That's powerful. That's powerful. And Paul is saying, if we have died in Christ and we've been raised with Christ, our life is hidden with Christ in that God? Come on. That's amazing. This is who Christ is. Well, what has he done? Well, the first thing that we ought to see is he has put an end to the striving. He's put an end to the striving. No more hoops to jump through. This is the essence of Christianity, by the way. If you lose it, you lose Christianity. We are saved by grace alone, which means this. Jesus has lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live and ought to have lived, and he's given that perfection to us. And so you don't have to earn credit with God. In fact, you can't. Jesus earns the credit with God for you, and it's given to you. So no more chasing No more running. He has fulfilled it all for us. He's put an end to the sacrifices. He's fulfilled the law on our behalf. He offers his own body. He delivers us from the domain of darkness. He has perfectly withstood temptation. He lived the sinless life that we could not. He died the sacrificial death that we would not. He's risen again that we might be free from both sin and death and have eternal life. That's what Christ has done. And we could go on and on and on. In fact, we will for all eternity. In, in, in John's gospel, John says, man, if we wrote down everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, the books, you know, all the books in the world would not contain all of this stuff. So is it any wonder that we're going to be celebrating the Lamb of God for all eternity? Like, we're not going to run out of his glory. Like, there's not going to be a day in eternity that we go, oh, well, now we're done. Praising the Son. It goes on and on and on. The things that he has done are endless and infinite. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. What does Christ have? So we've seen who Christ is, what he's done. What does he have? The Bible says he has every good blessing. Every good and perfect gift comes from heaven. He has every spiritual blessing to give us through his gospel. He has all the riches of heaven. Some of us, some of you really need to understand this because in some sense you feel like maybe God is holding out on you. And maybe it's because you're your faith feels a little shaken, your faith feels a little small. You need to know that the gospel, the good news announces that it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, it's the strength of your Savior. And so if your faith is true, if you have a real faith, it could be tiny. In fact, Jesus uses the illustration of a mustard seed. You could have the smallest faith in the world. And it might be weak and battered and sluggish. But if it's real, you have all the riches of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Not a bit of him is held back from you. 
every spiritual blessing. Every good blessing comes from him. Anything you truly need is found in him, and anything that you could want is rooted in only what he can provide. So all the things that we keep throwing into that God-shaped hole that won't fill it, really what we're looking for is God. Something satisfies, something fulfills, something make me happy, something give me joy, something give me peace. Bruce Marshall says, the young man who's knocking at the door of the brothel is subconsciously looking for God. I mean, he's looking for something sinful, but underneath that idolatry is he understands that there's something out there, some experience, some, uh, you know, relational intimacy that will finally fulfill him. He's looking really for God. He just doesn't know it. Everything we need, everything we could want is found in God. Are you tired? Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you confused? He is the light of the world and true wisdom. He will lead us by his spirit into all truth, the Bible says. Are you filled with shame? But we know what Jesus does when he encounters someone who just feels covered in shame in the scriptures. What does he do? He takes the shame away. He throws it into the depths of the sea and covers them with his own grace and mercy. He offers the arms of embrace. Are you suffering and hurting? He has comfort. Are you angry? He has peace. Are you persecuted? He has blessings for you, according to the Sermon on the Mount. Are you weak? He has power. For you, Are you afraid? He has courage for you. He's not giving you a spirit of fear. Are you anxious? He has patience. Are you stubborn? He has gentleness. Are you tempted? He has the escape. Are you sinful? He has his blood, which cleanses you from all unrighteousness. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. One guy that I knew who probably best embodied this for me, or who at least stands out to me as someone who really got this. Probably the most Jesus-y man that I've ever met. Like part of him is like in the spiritual world, it seemed like, is a guy by the name of Richard. And Richard died um, at the age of, of 32 um, years of age to um, a brain tumor. He had brain cancer. And when I met him, he, he was already, you know, already battling the cancer and went through a variety of treatments, surgeries, chemo, the whole, the whole bit. And he got to a point where he just decided, you know, I'm done with all of that. I'm just you know, going to submit myself to the will of God. And we're going to pray that he'll be healed, but he really just, was just sort of surrendering, you know, to what was taking place. And Richard um, seemed like all along he was tuned into this reality, the higher reality. I'm having a conversation with him. This guy's dying of cancer, but he always seems like, how can God use this? How can this be, you know, this be used to his glory? You know, it's a sobering conversation when you're talking to somebody about their own funeral, and it's not hypothetical, like someday when I die, but like, I'm going to die, this is what I want at my funeral. Richard had a lot of lost loved ones and, and um, you know, family members and friends. He wanted them to know Jesus. He thought if this experience that he's going through, if his suffering could steer somebody to Jesus, it would be totally worth it. And one thing that happened as the you know, tumor spread and we could see kind of the you know, uh, deterioration, he wasn't able to converse, you know, as he always could. And Richard was, I mean, he was tall, thin, healthy, strong, sarcastic. He was a cut up, just a really energetic guy. And we just saw him just kind of waste away and become more and more, almost like a shell of himself. And it started with like, he couldn't access certain words. You're having a conversation with him and he could reply, he could speak to you. But then it was like, almost like a vocabulary problem. There was something interrupting in his brain where he couldn't find certain words, just couldn't, you know, grab hold of the word. And if you said the word that you thought he was going for, he would say, yeah, that's it. That's it. Then over time, he, 
began um, to lose his ability to speak altogether. And so we weren't quite sure if he could understand everything that we were saying. He could look at us and he would nod, and, but he couldn't, he couldn't speak. And, and during that period of his life, I became somewhat you know, desperate for his voice. I wanted, to, I wanted to hear Richard. I missed hearing him speak. And so I looked up some old emails and Facebook messages just so I could you know, hear his voice. And I found one that just like wrecked me as I'm reading it. And I don't remember, I mean, it, it was dated like a year previous to this. It was September 12th, 2012, when he sent this email. And I don't remember if this like jumped out at me when I first read it or not. I don't remember it jumping out at me. But this time that I read it, when I'm desperate for his voice, this phrase just killed me. I, I don't know if it, you know, see if you catch what jumped out to me. He, he started by talking about some experimental treatment in Boston that his family was taking him to, and it was just kind of an update on what was going on. But this is how he closed his email. I really feel so blessed that God would actually use me at all to attempt to bring him the glory he so deserves. Why me, brother? And I don't know if you caught that, but for me, the sentence, why me, brother, stands out. Because if I were writing this email, like if I were dying of brain cancer, and I sent an email that had the phrase, why me, in it. It would not be, why me, like that. It would be like, why me? Like, why is God picking on me? Why would God give this to me? And I would have in the back of my mind all the reasons why I don't deserve this, why it should happen to somebody who's bad, or what, what have you, or all the reasons I've earned enough credit with God for him not to make me suffer this way, or not to allow me to have this sort of pain in my life. But that's not the way that Richard was saying, why me? Richard meant it like, why would God choose me for this great privilege? which is unreal. How do you get there? How can you have a brain tumor and think, what an amazing thing that God would use me to give him glory? Paul elsewhere refers to suffering, and he's not talking about, like, you're hurt. He's talking about suffering, like suffering unto death. Paul says it's a light, momentary affliction. Where would he get off calling suffering a light momentary affliction. Well, right after that he says, compared to the eternal weight of glory. That's what Richard was doing. And apparently it's like this all along because the day after he died, I was sitting on the porch with his father. And his father's not a believer. So this you know, will give you some kind of insight into how his, his father's processing this. But I was just telling him how profoundly impressed I was with his son, how you know, impactful his son had been on my life and, and how his son wanted this experience to point others to what he believed in. And his dad said, look, he was like that from the beginning because when, when we were sitting in the hospital and we knew that the news was coming, like they were coming to tell us you know, the test results, and we knew it wasn't going to be good. We didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but we knew, we've been led to believe this is not going to be good news. It's going to be bad news. He said, I looked at Richard and I said, no father should bury his son. And he said that Richard looked at him and said, no, dad. This is a good thing. God can use this. What is he doing? See, in Richard's father's mind, Richard is like using his religion, his, his spirituality to kind of stiff arm reality. He's trying to medicate himself against the death or against the suffering with this sort of ethereal, sentimental, religious type stuff. And it's actually the other way around. Richard actually was tuned in to real reality, the reality that's deeper and higher than cancer. Richard knew that cancer may have given him an expiration date, but that Jesus Christ had given cancer an expiration date. Richard knew that he'd been raised with Christ, that he was already there. 
And if you're already there, if your life is hidden with Christ in God, what have you to fear? You see how it affects not just going to the grocery store, it affects how you look at death. Christ's gospel is the skeleton key to human striving. I'll close with this. Last week, uh, last week, last year, I was reading a, uh, a biography about a guy by the name of George Whitfield. I don't know if that name rings any bells for you, but George Whitfield was an, uh, a British Anglican preacher who came to the American colonies in the 1700s. And I knew a little bit about Whitfield um, from having pastored a church in New England, was really interested in kind of the history of the church and revivals in the Northeast. And so, um, you know, Jonathan Edwards is a figure who looms large, and George Whitfield is a figure who looms large, the Great Awakenings and all that sort of thing. So I'm reading this biography, and I'm just blown away by how gnarly a guy George Whitfield is. I don't know if you know anything about the history of George Whitfield, but first of all, not much to look at, probably 350 pounds, cross-eyed guy, like, what I'm saying is, if he's got a, a show on TBN, you're not watching it, right? You know, like he, he's not much to look at. But everywhere that Whitfield went and, and preached, like thousands of people are showing up, like flocking to hear him, like camping out for days ahead of time. They hear Whitfield's coming. Okay, well, they like, well, you know, leave work and camp out to hear George Whitfield preach. Thomas Kidd, who wrote the biography, says he's kind of like the first British invasion. He's like, like bigger than the Beatles. He's the first celebrity of the American colonies, honestly. And Benjamin Franklin was a good friend of his. Even though Franklin wasn't a believer, Franklin published his sermons and you know, tried to kind of help promote Whitfield. So everywhere that Whitfield's going, huge crowds are showing up. And it gets even weirder. So he preaches, and it like has this pronounced, like, like people are freaking out. He preaches, people are ripping their clothes, they're screaming, they're crying, they're hitting the floor. It's like this charismatic ecstasy that's taking place everywhere he goes. It's the strangest thing ever. And it's not just him because people would take his printed sermons, other preachers would take Whitfield's sermons and go preach them in other places. And the same thing would happen. People would freak out and fall out and like all this kind of craziness would ensue. So I'm thinking as I'm reading this biography, I want to get some of Whitfield's sermons. Like, see what happens, right? <laughs> So I did. I found, you know, ordered from a publisher, um, you know, two volumes, collected sermons of George Whitfield, and I started reading them. And, the, you know, the good thing about George Whitfield's sermons is he, he's not like Edwards. I don't know if you've, you know, read preachers of that time or religious writers of that time, but um, like Edwards is very technical, a lot of theological jargon. He's like, he's really academic. Whitfield's not like that at all. He's very, he, he puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. So it's very simple. He's writing for the common man. There's a lot of illustrations, a lot of narrative kind of thing. He puts you in the shoes of the people in Scripture. And so they're very easy to read and very easy to understand. But as I'm reading them, I'm thinking, like, there's no, like, I'm not tearing my shirt off. I, like, I don't know, you know, it's not having the same effect on, on me. Until, until I came to one particular sermon. And I knew about this sermon because Kidd spends a little bit of time in his biography of Whitfield on this message. It's called Christ the Best Husband. And Christ the Best Husband was written especially for young women. And especially for young women who are aspiring to be married, like single women who are thinking a husband will finally, you know, if I have a husband, then I'll be happy or what have you. So it's a sermon for the ladies. And I, I just, like full disclosure to you, I was in a cigar shop, right? I'm in the most masculine environment that you can think of, or at least that I could think of, right? A lot of dudes, there's dead things on the walls, all, you know, all this sort of thing. <laughs> And I'm reading, and it was the sermon for the ladies that somehow un unlocked something in my heart. And so I just want to read an excerpt to you from Christ the Best Husband, George Whitfield. 
He says, consider who the Lord Jesus is, whom you are invited to espouse yourselves unto. He is the best husband. There is none comparable to Jesus Christ. Do you desire one that is great? He is, the, he is of the highest dignity. He is the glory of heaven, the darling of eternity, admired by angels, dreaded by devils, adored by saints. For you to be married to so great a king, what honor will you have by this marriage? Do you desire one that is rich? None is comparable to Christ. The fullness of the earth belongs to him. If you be married to Christ, you will share in his unsearchable riches. You will receive of his fullness, even grace upon grace, and you will hereafter be admitted to glory and will live with this Jesus for all eternity. Do you desire one that is wise? There is none comparable to Christ for wisdom. His knowledge is infinite, and his wisdom is correspondent thereto. If you are married to Christ, he will guide you and counsel you and make you wise unto salvation. Do you desire one that is powerful, who may defend you against your enemies and all the insults and reproaches of the Pharisees of this generation? There is none that can equal Christ in power, for the Lord Jesus Christ hath all power. Do you desire one that is good? There is none like unto Christ in this regard. Others may have some goodness, but it's imperfect. Christ's goodness is complete and perfect. He is full of goodness, and in him dwelleth no evil. Do you desire one that is beautiful? His eyes are most sparkling. His looks and glances of love are ravishing. His smiles are most delightful and refreshing unto the soul. Christ is the most lovely person in all the world. Do you desire one that can love you? None can love you like Christ. His love, my dear sisters, is incomprehensible. His love passeth all other loves. The love of the Lord Jesus is first without beginning. His love is free without any motive. His love is great without any measure. His love is constant without any change. And his love is everlasting. Everything that you and I are looking for everywhere but in God can only be found in God. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. 